Hi there, my name is Rob Kirk, and welcome to our latest Coronacast. With the news that the UK regulator, the MHRA, has this week given the green light for emergency authorization of the BioNTech Pfizer vaccine, we're obviously going to be talking vaccines this week on our Coronacast. For those of you who followed our campaign to put pressure on governments and vaccine makers to be transparent on their science, don't be surprised that um, as vaccines are rolled out next week, we're obviously going to not have um, a lot of transparency um, in order to make properly informed consent. So this week, what we're going to do is drill down into some of the key pieces of information that will hopefully help shine a little more light into the opaque box of vaccine information. As more and more vaccine doses are received and more vaccines receive authorizations, much of the world's population is soon going to be asked to make a momentous choice. Vaccinate using the first ever fast-track synthetic biology vaccines or not, as the case may be, but then face the possible withdrawal of basic rights or privileges. To help you make this choice, you need to access specific pieces of information that allow you to give medical informed consent. But as we've explained in a, in a previous vi video, it's a legal obligation on the part of healthcare providers and health authorities. So this video has been made to help you understand what's known or not known about four key pieces of information you have a right to know before making this really important choice. The first is knowing what the vaccine actually is, including what's in it and how it works. This is really important because it's the first time synthetic biology vaccines, ones based on genetic editing or gene modification, have been released at scale. The second is having a clear understanding of what you're protecting yourself from. And that, of course, relates to the current, not the past, health risk posed by the virus that causes COVID-19, namely SARS-CoV-2. Um, and you need to know this at the time that you're making an informed decision about vaccination. The third is knowing about what benefits and risks the vaccine might offer you in the wake of news of claims of 62 to 95% efficacy among the COVID vaccine frontrunners from BioNTech and Pfizer that we'll call Pfizer in this video, um, Moderna, and the third, Oxford University and AstraZeneca vaccine that we'll refer to here as AstraZeneca. The fourth and final area is knowing what information you can get about your immunity status before you're, you'd make the decision to be vaccinated. Uh, these are all components of our 10-point vaccine transparency manifesto that we launched last May. So we're giving you some key insights before you make that decision. So let's start by looking at how the UK-grown AstraZeneca vaccine works. This vaccine is called a non-replicating viral vector vaccine. It's the same technology platform that was used previously for the MERS vaccine that was never released at scale, um, the, the Zika vaccines, as well as some of the flu vaccines. It uses a vector or transporter that's a 
common cold virus that infects chimpanzees that's been genetically modified so it can't replicate in humans. Into this GM chimp virus is then inserted a piece of synthetic genetic material that codes for the surface spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. Once it's injected into a human being, the surface spike protein is expressed from the synthetic gene sequence and an antibody response to the antigen is produced, this providing protection um, from a trained immune system if you then encounter SARS-CoV-2 in real life. And of course, we don't know the duration to which that protection lasts. Um, the vaccine can be distributed and stored at normal refrigerated temperatures of between 4 and 8 degrees. It's reckoned to cost around £3 sterling per dose. And it's the two-dose schedule that's been found to give 90% efficacy under trial conditions, um, the single dose offering just 62% by comparison. Both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines use a different vaccine platform, one called messenger RNA or mRNA for short. Messenger RNA itself is a single strand of the nucleic acid RNA that corresponds to a particular genetic sequence that codes for a given gene that is in turn read by the ribosome within the cell to synthesize the specific protein that's normally produced by that gene. So an mRNA, mRNA vaccine uses a synthetic gene sequence that codes for the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. They're then encapsulated within a tiny lipid nanoparticle that when injected into muscle causes the muscle cells to start producing the spike protein. This then causes the body to mount an immune response, which should also protect someone who's infected with the real virus during the unknown period of time in which the immune system is primed. By giving the instructions to the body to produce the spike protein, mRNA um, vaccines are in effect turning the body into a vaccine factory. The mRNA vaccines require two doses that cost between um, a projected 15 to 25 pounds sterling per dose, but they need to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius, which of course complicates the cold distribution chain um, that's currently used for vaccines and certain drugs. At the moment, there isn't any reliable information on exactly what the lipid nanoparticles in the mRNA vaccines are comprised of, um, whether there are any other ingredients or adjuvants added to any of these vaccines, or if there might be any potential contaminants in each of the main vaccine candidates. Moving on to how the vaccines affect the immune system, the main so-called primary endpoints being evaluated in the phase three trials for the current round of emergency use authorization reviews are largely safety issues. Some are also evaluating COVID symptoms among those who test positive by PCR, and others look at raised neutralizing antibodies. Some also include endpoints around safety that won't be completed until well after emergency use authorization is granted. So in our view, it's entirely disingenuous and unscientific for health authorities or vaccine companies to make the claim that these vaccines are safe. If you want to take part in a phase three trial of the AstraZeneca vaccine, you're still in with a chance as it's running a little behind the Pfizer and Moderna schedules. But you'll only be prioritized if you're at high risk of exposure because you're a frontline health worker or a care home worker. The reason given by the Oxford researchers is that the epidemic is waning 
and they need to make sure enough people are exposed to the real virus to get enough data to see how vaccinated and controlled populations respond when they're infected. You heard that, didn't you? That the university that's ranked as the world's number one since 2017 by the Times Higher Education World University Rankings says the epidemic is waning. Last week also, Dr. Mike Yeadon, a former vice president and chief science officer for allergy and respiratory at Pfizer, along with a number of others, presented a detailed briefing to UK members of parliament. What the briefing paper is um, is supporting is actually described as a parliamentary rebellion, which I guess is in some way it is because what these MPs are doing is rebelling against groupthink and politics attempting to take over healthcare and driving a coach and horses through people's rights and freedoms, as well as ushering in an authoritarian regime. The briefing argues with supporting data that the pandemic is also now over. And what we're really seeing in the Northern Hemisphere is a pseudo-epidemic propagated by flawed mass testing regime that relies on PCR, that's generating a large number of false positives, enough to give the impression of an epidemic. False positive pseudo-epidemics are actually well known in the medical literature and have been found in every, everything from TB to prostate cancer to whooping cough, pertussis. Um, and they've also been on the rise with increasing reliance on molecular techniques like PCR testing, such as that used for SARS-CoV-2. We're also seeing a tendency for excess mortalities to go up in countries that didn't experience any first wave excess mortality. Some of this might be linked to delayed indirect effects of lockdowns when people with serious diseases haven't been able to access the care they needed, while some may also be experiencing a delayed first wave. It's essential that all the known risks relating both to the pathogen, but also to the particular vaccine in question are put in the public domain, along with what's known about the protection the vaccine offers. That's not just headlines like the 90 to 95% efficacy. That means putting the raw data into the public domain so it can be analyzed by independent scientists. And to date, none of the full data sets have been released at all. Not only that, none of the three frontline vaccines from AstraZeneca, Pfizer, or Moderna have published their phase three trial results. The only things we've got to go on so far are press releases that are deeply deficient in data on both risks and benefits. What's been blasted around the airwaves, of course, are these dizzying efficacy figures of between 62 and 95% that past history from vaccine trials and post-marketing surveillance suggests are unlikely to be achieved in the real world. So what do these figures of 62 and 95% actually mean? Well, first of all, they relate to efficacy, not effectiveness. And efficacy measures the performance of a treatment or a vaccine under ideal and controlled circumstances, while effectiveness is the performance under real world conditions. Because the vaccines are being evaluated under trial conditions so far, you don't have the vagaries of the real world to contend with. So they are efficacy. And um, what are the performance parameters? We don't know if this vaccine will prevent transmission or any of them. We have to wait for the science to tell us if it will prevent transmission. Though 
we are very hopeful on that point. Is it protecting people against transmitting the infection or is it about protecting the vaccinated person from severe disease if they're infected during a specific time window when the immune system has been upregulated? As it turns out, it's only the latter. So that means that vaccinations are not being evaluated for the ability to stop the transmission of infections, something you'd think would be a target if you wanted to wipe out an epidemic or a pandemic. It's actually something that takes much longer than the very short time frame these vaccines are being created within. Same applies to safety issues. Some of the trials will continue to look at safety for 12 months or more, but the vaccines are going to be rolled out at least for emergency use, sometimes with just a couple of months of safety data behind them. And as we've said before, history tells us it can be years before safety concerns are exposed, as we discovered with the swine flu vaccine, pandemics, and the narcolepsy that was later found in children. The current crop of novel COVID vaccines are only being tested for their ability to stop people getting seriously ill, a risk that becomes less and less in a waning epidemic and a risk that primarily only affects older people or those with underlying conditions. On top of that, we don't know a lot about the populations who appear to be protected from severe disease in the vaccine trials, and how many of these include groups that are um, among the most vulnerable. We've also got to note that two doses are needed in all three vaccines to yield the highest immune response, and higher doses generally also yield more adverse reactions. In effect, it means that the current phase three trials are really testing the vaccines as a preventative treatment, not for their ability to make you immune to the virus and incapable of transmitting it. This is a really important distinction. In other words, what the vaccines are really trying to do is to make people respond more like an unvaccinated, healthy person would with a good functioning immune system, perhaps with some possible historic cross immunity from other coronaviruses um, or previous exposure to SARS-CoV-2 that you may or may not know about. And of course, adequate amounts of resources needed for a healthy immune system, such as vitamin C, D, zinc, and a number of other cofactors in their system. On the risk side, the AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and Moderna have all claimed a lack of safety concerns. But in the phase one and two trials of the AstraZeneca vaccine, moderate to severe adverse events were experienced by 80% of those receiving the COVID jab. With the Pfizer, um, with the Pfizer vaccine, nearly 4% of people suffered from severe or grade three adverse events. And these grade three ad adverse events aren't a walk in the park. They're just one category down from grade four adverse events that are described as potentially life-threatening and they require hospitalization and critical care. People with grade five events, just for comparison, don't get to tell their story. But the more separated in time a death is from a vaccination, as hundreds of families have found in the various national vaccine courts, the harder it gets to prove a causal relationship. Anyway, grade three adverse events are certainly severe enough to give a susceptible person sufficient immunologic or neurologic shock to trigger long-term health challenges that might affect their nervous system or autoimmunity. And while Pfizer might have dismissed these as insignificant at just 3.8%, if that percentage was to be applied, say, to 70% of the US and UK populations, 
that would amount to a staggering 334 million people who'd experience severe adverse events. The trouble here is the potential for long-term consequences of any adverse event isn't something you can just monitor in a couple of months. It typically takes years of um, post-marketing surveillance. And here I want to emphasize the point, until that kind of timescale has passed, we think it would be premature, irresponsible and unscientific to call these vaccines safe. So what if you already had COVID, knowingly or unknowingly? If you've had COVID quite severely and you're being tested for your levels of antibodies, they may actually still be raised. But if you had a milder infection or you already have some cross immunity from another related coronavirus, um, and in particular if you're a healthy woman, you might not have raised antibodies at all, yet you might still be perfectly immune to infection. So what would actually protect you is these memory T cells like the CD4 plus and CD8 plus T cells along with B cells, all of which aren't being measured when you have one of those if I had it in the past tests. These actually don't accurately tell you if you've had it in the past as they only measure one kind of marker of you know, up to three of the immunoglobulins, IgA, IgM or IgG, for the longer term adaptive immune responses, um, namely the neutralizing antibodies. So they don't measure the all important memory T cell responses that's actually the main driver for herd immunity. And if immunity passports are to be developed, which is the plan in the UK and by many other governments, it would make absolutely no sense to do this without T cell tests being included. And there are a number of them in development now. We know from other pathogens, including the closely related SARS, that memory T cells may actually remain active against given pathogen for years or even decades. We also know that antibodies always fade after a few months. So this brings us onto what we can all do next. I'm going to focus here on what we think are the three most important things you can do. Firstly, you should make sure that you have enough information that you think is sufficient for you to exercise your right to informed consent. You have a right to know any information about the safety and effectiveness of the vaccines that is already known to public bodies, such as the drug regulators, that is of overriding public interest. And that rights expanded in constitutions and human rights legislation and it's also endorsed by the United Nations Commission on Human Rights. In our book, this should involve at least two pieces of information. Firstly, there should be full disclosure of exactly what's in each of the vaccines. And that includes the exact composition of lipid nanoparticles being used, for example, to deliver the mRNA vaccines that both Pfizer and Moderna are making. Are these synthetic? Are they animal-based? Do they include things like shark squalene, like many uh, of the conventional vaccines? And will animal-derived products like this be injected unknowingly into vegetarians and vegans with vaccine makers and regulators just turning a blind eye? Second piece of information that we think is really important 
is full disclosure of the raw data from phase three clinical trials, as well as any other relevant results from safety and efficacy trials, so that independent scientific review can occur. Presently, we're a long way from having any of this, and quite simply, it isn't possible to give properly informed consent without a lot more information being released than that which is currently available. From an informed consent point of view, we'd say right now, on the basis of inadequate information, you have an ample right to ask to delay your decision pending further information. Seems the vaccine lobby is very quick to accuse vaccine hesitance on the basis of claimed ignorance, while it fails to recognize that a lack of confidence is largely down to distrust that has built up over years of non-disclosure. The tobacco industry has had its comeuppance for such failure to disclose key information, but the vaccine industry has yet to fall from grace for what is in effect the same failure to disclose information of overriding public interest. You don't even have to deconstruct the design of the COVID vaccine trials or study the available results to have a view on this. You need to just read the trial designs as they stand. The fact that many of the phase three trials have primary or secondary endpoints that relate to safety that are still months away, some of them 12 months or even 24 months from the time that the second dose was delivered, Governments are misrepresenting the science when they claim that the vaccines are or have been found to be safe. If you combine the use of this false safety claim with ramped up direct-to-consumer advertising, which is fully expected or it has already been legitimized in some countries like the UK, you can get some sense of how prepared governments are to lie to the public. We'll all be looking to the courts to resolve any such public health abuses as they occur. But in the meantime, please sign our petition that asks governments to stop claiming vaccines are safe in the absence of comprehensive safety data. You'll find all the links to this and other references in the article that accompanies this video. It goes without saying, given the current threat posed by the virus and uncertainties around the long-term effectiveness and safety of COVID vaccines, we are opposed to mandatory vaccination. Mandatory vaccination doesn't engage with the reasons why so many people lack confidence in the current crop of vaccines. It's also a major intrusion on individuals' rights and freedoms, and it undoes all the work in public health that's trying to develop greater autonomy and responsibility for self-care that's really at the heart of resolving some of the biggest challenges in health. What's actually a bigger threat than mandatory COVID vaccination is coercion. This is likely to play out through the withdrawal of rights or privileges from those who don't consent to vaccination. That might be by stopping those who can't prove they're vaccinated from traveling on planes or trains or buses or attending sports fixtures or entertainment venues or enjoying hospitality, claiming benefits, or even sending your kids to school. You name it, the list of possibilities currently being discussed in political circles is a potentially very long one. We argue that it's an infringement on the right to private and family life to suffer loss of these rights simply because a person has decided that there are 
insufficient data available to give informed consent to vaccination. Once again, this is something that many of us are watching very closely, and it's likely that it'll be a matter that will ultimately be settled in the courts. But in a world that's rightly calling out for more equality, let me leave you with this last question to ponder. Why are some people so driven to mandate this kind of inequality to those who've decided that the lack of vaccine transparency prevents them from making a properly informed choice? And finally, we ask you to share this video and the linked article as widely as you can on whatever platform works for you. You'll now find all our videos in the video section of our website at anhinternational.org forward slash videos. Unfortunately, YouTube isn't allowing balanced representation of information on vaccines, so we can no longer post videos on vaccines on that channel. Bear with us as we navigate the current era of unprecedented censorship. And please also sign up for our newsletter for weekly analysis, articles, updates and videos. Thank you.